Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Amen. Our text for our sermon is the gospel history according to St. John as recorded in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. That's the wedding feast at Cana where Jesus turned the barrels of water into wine as we heard in our gospel lesson. Brothers and sisters in Christ, in Bible study this morning covering original sin, we saw through Adam and Eve's fall how they passed the buck on each other and blamed each other and their marriage was never perfect again. But God didn't scrap the institution of marriage. Oh no, he keeps it as the basic building block of all of society. And time and time again you find when a society has a low view of marriage, that society is crumbling and, and, and past its glory days, if you will. God also uses marriage as an analogy for what we have in our Savior Jesus Christ. Christ is the bridegroom. We, the believers, are the bride. He has died in our place, and so he's washed us clean and paid for our wedding dress, that beautiful white dress that is not our own righteousness, it's his righteousness. And so the first miracle he publicly performs is done at a wedding. And keeping in mind both that God sees marriage as the basic building block of society and that it is a mini-model of Christ and his bride, the church of which we're members today, we see Jesus reveals his glory as a blessing to his bride so that we put our trust in him. Now, last week we had covered the baptism of Christ and we learned that his baptism was a public anointing in which God the Father spoke, the Holy Spirit descended upon him. God made it clear, this is the Savior. This is the only one, because he's the only one that was anointed for this. And, and it was made very clear, Jesus began his public ministry. So the very next thing that happens was not very public because he's led by the Holy Spirit out in the desert and he's tempted by the devil for 40 days. He's tempted in ways that you and I are tempted, but he never falls. He stands up to them and he credits you and I who believe in him with his perfect obedience. Again, that white dress of his righteousness is placed upon us. All right. So after that temptation, he comes back out. John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of the Lord, he's doing what he was called to do. He's baptizing and pointing to the coming Savior. He looks up, he sees Jesus, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There are two disciples of his that are there named John and Andrew. And they go after this Jesus. Now, John doesn't talk a whole lot about himself in his, uh, in his gospel, often refers to himself as the disciple who Jesus loves and leaves a lot of his stuff out. It appears, we can't say with certainty, that John would go off and get his brother James. So there appears now to be a third disciple. But Andrew, Andrew, he's got that famous brother among the disciples. He goes and gets his brother Cephas, who Jesus will rename Peter. Peter kind of is the spokesman for the disciples. Following this, Philip. Jesus calls Philip. Philip goes and gets his buddy Nathaniel, and Jesus tells Nathaniel things that no one could know unless they were God. Now, Jesus isn't using the full powers of his godhood. He's hiding it. Otherwise, the people around him would be destroyed because they're sinners, just as you and I are, and Jesus is God. So he doesn't use all the powers of his godhood. Yet now he's got these disciples, and it turns out being there's a wedding feast. 
Now this Cana, we don't know exactly where it's at. Archaeologists have found several cities they suspect is it. It might be another, but we know the region. And it's very close to Nazareth. So it tells us this is either close family friends to Jesus and his mother Mary, or this is actually relatives, family. And Jesus is invited and he goes with his disciples. And that's where our text begins after this calling of the disciples. Nathan is actually from this town, Cana, we're told. And on the third day, a wedding banquet took place in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now, let's just stop there for a minute, brothers and sisters in Christ, because something amazing has happened and it's flown right underneath the radar, right underneath our noses. Israel was originally divided up between the 12 sons of Jacob. And there are a few of those sons that they, they just never really get mentioned a lot. They're not great like Levi being the priesthood or Judah through whom the Savior would come. But in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1, 700 years earlier, this prophecy was given. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. Sons of concubines. They seem to be insignificant. Thousands of years later, this land, they don't really stand out. There's an important thing for you and I to recognize, brothers and sisters in Christ. Even when we feel insignificant, unimportant, not glorious in the world's ways, God still gives us His grace. In fact, he often gives his grace the most to those who are the most humbled. He has planned it out in history to prepare our hearts. So these people in this backwards hit town seem to be somehow a connection with Jesus. If he's going to go to a wedding, why not go to one of Herod's weddings or one of the great uh, families? Instead, he blesses the wedding of some couples whose names we don't even know. Because even the most simple things in this world that we think are insignificant, God is willing to give his grace. And he gives this couple a double blessing. So in those days, wedding was different. You didn't have a big signing of certificate like we do today. The bride and groom, usually the, the groom would arrange with the bride's father a time when they would be considered married. He'd go to her house, they would escort her to his house, and, and there'd be a wedding feast for everybody. In the days they didn't have refrigeration, grape juice put out would spoil, so they used grape wine. But there's a problem. Mary, either these are close family friends or relatives, she's concerned. Oh, oh boy. She basically comes up to Jesus and says they're running out. Now, if you want to get two pastors into an argument, they won't punch at each other. You ask them, was Mary coming to her son asking for a miracle or, second option, was she simply coming to him asking him to help with the problem? Now, Joseph is not mentioned again after Jesus was left behind at the temple and was learning the word of God. So the Christian church has always speculated that he's received eternal glory because he's never mentioned again. It seems he passed away when Jesus was young. So it could be very much that Jesus, being the oldest in the family, would take over the family business and would be the one they provided to. So it's actually very reasonable that Mary, not even thinking of him in his capacity of Messiah, would come up to him and say, oh boy, there's a problem. Maybe hoping her son and his five to six buddies that are with him could run and get somebody to open up their wine shop at this time and get some wine so that these dear friends will not, or family members will not be disgraced. Jesus says these strange words, and, and people often struggle how to interpret it. Uh, the literal translation of our Greek would be, how does what concerns me concern you? 
If Jesus, his mother, is coming to him asking for a miracle, he says, this is my business, leave this to me. If she's coming to him basically as somebody she's used to, as being the provider for the family, and, and saying, there's a problem, can you help with it? He's saying, you know what, I got this one as God. I'm the God of all providence. Don't worry about this. Don't fret about this. So what does my business as God have to do to, with conforming to your will? Lots of times, like when Mary had found him at the temple when he was learning, she said, we've been worried, sick about you. And he says, I had to be about my Father's will, which means Jesus never sinned against any of the commandments, but when God the Father's will was in conflict with his parents' will, God the Father's will trumped it. It won out. So now it's time. But he says, my time has not yet come. It's the time that he reveals himself as the God of all providence blatantly for all to see. This is ultimately fulfilled when he dies and rises and ascends to heaven. But just as God giving Adam and Eve the promise of a coming Savior and then over centuries adds more to that promise, more clarity, so that it would be very clear who to look for, so Jesus gradually reveals himself to the world. And one of the great miracles that's quite a ways away, like a year and a half or more away, when he shows himself to be the God of all providence, is when he feeds the 5,000. That was 5,000 men, giving us at least 15,000 total with women and children, if not way more. And what was the result when he showed just a glimpse of that God providence glory to those people he fed? The next day they hunted him down and they wanted him to be their bread king. They wanted a welfare system where Jesus would just throw bread at them and they'd be content. And when he explains to them, no, I'm the savior. I've come to give you eternal life. I have come to fix the world because I will recreate it and those who trust in me will receive that new and glorified world. Well, what do they do? He loses most of those who were following him. So he doesn't give the greatest shining miracle. You see, this, is, this one's done very subtly. But there's a wonderful lesson we can learn from our dear sister in Christ with Mary. What does Mary react when he says, not yet? She run off and, oh, but I wanted this now. Now's the time. I mean, a couple of minutes and people are going to start leaving. She turns, she turns to the servants and simply says, whatever he asks you to do, whatever he tells you to do, do it. She took her problem to her Lord. One way or the other, she found out he's going to work as God. She left the solution to him. He said, not yet. She said, fine, in your timing. This is no longer my problem. Thank you, my Savior. You and I can bring our problems to Jesus, our God who has saved us. We can take them to him. We don't have to bother with the solutions. We get desert terminal diseases especially right now with the downturn in natural resources, we lose our jobs, we worry about financial concerns, these sorts of things, take it to the Lord in prayer. Sometimes his answer is immediate. Sometimes his answer is not yet. But the one thing he promises, he knows all things, and he answers according to what is best for us. And so he's going to give this couple a very special gift. So we move on to the next part of this blessing in revealing his glory at a wedding. Good enough just to have the Savior come to your wedding, right? What a blessing. Oh, we're running out of wine. So they have these water jars. They hold 20 to 30 gallons of water. We're told they're for purification customs. All right, brothers and sisters in Christ, let me put this in perspective. These were used to wash your hands. They were used for ceremonial washing. They, they weren't about bacteria, but all those Old Testament laws, ceremonial cleanliness, Jesus had come to fulfill. 
at these wedding feasts, there would be lots of water so people could wash their hands before they celebrated in the feast, make themselves ceremonially clean. These held upwards 20 to 30 gallons. Our original language, Greek language inspired, uses it in the plural. So there would be at least 60 gallons, that'd be two jars, if not more, because we're not told how many, we just know there's more than one. Jesus tells them, fill those up with water and go and take them. Now, it would have been good enough if he'd have just given them some wine, right? Water into wine, this doesn't happen. In fact, you don't get wine from water, you get it from grapes. And you have to let them sit for a while and ferment. Jesus doesn't just bless this wedding with his presence. He solves their problem. And that's an important lesson for you and I in remembering we are the bride of Christ. He solves our problems. Just like Mary, we want to be good stewards. If I pray the Lord because I'm losing my job and something uh, comes up, in good stewardship, I should take it, right? Unless it's something that contradicts God's wills, one of those vocations that the Ten Commandments speak against. So we in good stewardship will manage what God has put before us, but we take our problems to him and let him take care of it. And he blesses this wedding. Now, when they take the wine to the, to the chief steward, he makes an announcement. It's basically, normally you put out the good wine first, and when people's senses get dulled, doesn't mean they have to be drunk, but we know when you drink some, some alcohol, it dulls the senses. Then you put out the cheap stuff. You've saved the best for last. Jesus doesn't just give them wine. He gives them good wine. He gives them yummy wine. What a blessing. See, with the abundance they would have, they would be able to take this home. This was what they drank in those days. They'd be able to take this home and have it in their marriage. There's an expense. They wouldn't be going out and buying wine every week. And if there's quite an abundance that they can't drink, we don't know for sure, they would actually be able to sell it. This is good wine. It would fetch a good price and it would bring financial cushions to their marriage. Jesus didn't just solve their problem. He blessed them in abundance. And those jars that I told you about that, he, that, that were used for washing your hands, imagine... If you had, if Jesus came to your wedding and gave you wine out of the bathtub, that's what these jars were. They were the kitchen sink of their days. I already mentioned about the land of Zebulon and Naphtali. Oftentimes the things that we forget or that we think are just so mundane and so insignificant, God turns around and takes and makes them something wonderful. Every one of you has more than one vocation. And we might think that our jobs we do and the roles we fulfill in our family, we might think they're insignificant and unimportant. God uses you. He uses you mightily in those in ways you often don't realize. Just like he used those jars for cleansing and used them to hold fantastic wine, you are there as a blessing to others. And as a side note, often we forget that too, how wonderful it is. God lets us, we give a portion of our income and our offerings. Nobody gives us a guilt trip or pounds us to do it. We do it out of love for the Lord. And he blesses us all the more. We end up with a warm building. That dirty, filthy money we think of. Sometimes it's sweaty, you know. And, and yet God turns around and uses something that mundane. And he says, I've now let you have a part in, in supporting the proclamation of my word so that we can put missionaries in places you and I may never travel to in our lives. God often uses the things that this world thinks of as insignificant, even dirty, and he turns them into something wonderful. Marriage is tainted by sin. A sinful man marries a sinful woman. God turns it into something wonderful, especially when they have faith, because then you have a church. 
because mom and dad bring their children up knowing the Lord as well. And so we've seen so far, Jesus reveals his glory, a blessing to his bride, an abundant blessing that he gives in so many different ways. But we're told at the end of our text, this is the first of the signs that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and made known his glory and his disciples put their trust in him. So we go from his public anointing and baptism, his temptation, now his first public miracle. And there was a purpose to it. It was to edify the faith of those five to six men who, had, who were following him as his disciples. It was a very subtle miracle, but a very big one. Now, today we have Christians, they misunderstand the Bible. And for example, they get a terminal disease and they say, if I just believe hard enough, it'll be healed. And they make faith something they do. Or you get these Christians who think that they're faith healers. But you know, where does the emphasis go? Me. My glory. My will. When Jesus did this miracle, it was a blessing for others and it was to strengthen faith. God tells you when you have faith, if it's his will that you're going to do a miracle, he will work that miracle through you. But it's not so you and I can get inflated egos and say, look at what a good Christian I am. I just raised somebody from the dead. It's so that God is glorified because it's not that God's on an ego trip when he's glorified. It confirms to us that the one we're trusting for our salvation is the one we should be trusting in for our salvation. So we see here his first miracle is a blessing to a wedding, which shows us a blessing to his bride, the church. Jesus reveals his glory, a blessing to his bride. It's salvation. It's righteousness. He gives us everything we need in this life. And he does that so that we put our trust in him. Amen. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.